Chapter 1. One thing that almost all trained attorneys are able to do is to be able to compartmentalize their thinking in a structured manner. And that is our goal in learning to think like a lawyer, to become familiarized with the disciplines of law enough to understand how laws, society, and business all interconnect together through a series of legal disciplines. Some of the origins of the basic principles of law date as far back as the Hammurabi Code. Many of the cases used to demonstrate legal principles in this series come from jurisdictions all over the world. As the study of law is not unique to just one area, much of the principles of law have been derived from an international arena of legal principles. The United States derived much of their legal system from English common law. England had derived much of their principles of law from both Roman and Greek law. Learning the principles of law requires thinking in the abstract. It is not satisfactory to simply memorize statutes. Principles of law have to be examined, dissected, and analogized to understand the underlying arguments involved and the various interpretations. There are majority opinions and minority opinions. Quite often, as the needs of society change, the minority opinions often become the majority opinion. The principles of law are fluid and not carved in stone. That is why it is so important to be able to analyze and look for ideas that support or reject contentions and be able to anticipate counter-arguments. It is not enough to just know one facet of law. In order to grasp the big picture, it is necessary to understand the gamut of legal disciplines. Think of the basic building blocks of law as being apropos to the basic colors of the spectrum, that is, blue, red, and yellow. From blue and yellow, you can make green. From red and yellow, you can make orange, etc. The basic building blocks of law are contracts, torts, and criminal law. All other disciplines of law require prerequisite understanding of these basic courses. In almost all traditional law schools, the study of contracts, torts, and criminal law are required in the first year. For this reason, I have arranged the curriculum in the traditional law school hierarchy. I saved U.S. constitutional law for last for a reason. I want you to be able to apply all that you have learned so far in understanding how the U.S. Constitution affects society. Understanding the basic principles of law is crucial to having a true understanding of how the American legal system and the social atmosphere intertwine. This series of courses provide the student with a series of chapters on general law designed to promote absorbing the knowledge at an individual pace. It is important to listen to these courses repetitiously. The more you listen, the more the legal trivia becomes a system of laws. After a while, the legal system starts to make sense. That, friends, is the end goal, for you to be able to understand our legal system so that you may be able to learn to think like a lawyer. Contract Capacity and Legality In order for a contract to be binding, both parties must have the capacity to be bound to the contract. A minor or a person with diminished capacity is presumed to lack the ability to fully appreciate the seriousness and magnitude of their promise to be contractually bound. The exception to this concept are contracts for necessities. 
food, shelter, clothing, and medical needs are considered to be necessities and are an exception to the rule requiring the capacity to be held to a contract. Capacity in English law refers to the ability of a contracting party to enter into legally binding relations. If a party does not have the capacity to do so, then subsequent contracts may be invalid. However, in the interest of certainty, there is a prima facie presumption that both parties hold the capacity to contract. What does that mean if you lack the capacity to contract? Well, the burden is on you to prove that you lack the capacity. Those who contract without a full knowledge of the relevant subject matter, or those who are illiterate or unfamiliar with the English language, will not often be released from their bargains. As a matter of contract policy, the courts abhor forfeiture and want a party to benefit from their bargain. There's a maxim. Equity will not grant relief for a self-created hardship. In other words, you can't go and make a really bad deal and expect the court to release you from that deal just because you were stupid enough to make the deal. It is recognized, however, that minors and those who are deemed mentally incapacitated may need to be able to create binding agreements when acquiring essential items for living or for employment. Thus, contracts for necessaries, goods or services deemed necessary for ordinary living, will always be legally binding. Equally, minors have the capacity to enter into contracts for employment when the terms of such agreement are of general benefit to them. If not, then they may elect to avoid the contract. Companies and businesses were also significantly limited in the range of contracts they could bind themselves to under their Objects Clause until reform in the Companies Act in 1989. If the directors or the officers of a company enter an agreement with another person or business and that agreement is beyond the list of business tasks set under the company's constitution, then the contract will be invalid if the third party in bad faith has knowingly taken advantage of the company. Otherwise, under the Companies Act 2006, the contract will remain valid and shareholders must sue the director or officers for losses. Minors. In English contract law, a minor is an individual under the age of 18 years. Historically, the age had been 21 until the Family Law Reform Act of 1969. As a general rule, a minor is not bound by contracts he makes, though the adult party whom he contracts with is. Once a minor reaches the age of majority, however, he can elect to ratify a contract made as a minor in full capacity. This rule is subject to several types of contracts which a minor will be bound by and his right to repudiate such contracts. Contracts for Necessaries In England, the courts recognize that subject matter and extent of a contract may vary according to the state and condition of the infant or minor himself. His clothes may be old or they may be very nice according to his position in life. His education may vary according to his upbringing, and the medicines he needs will depend on the illness with which he is afflicted, and the extent of his probable means when of age. So again, the nature and extent of the attendance will depend on the minor's position in society. In Chapel versus Ann Cooper, 
1834 case, the court held that miners are legally bound where a contract supplies them with necessaries or goods and services which are deemed necessary or beneficial to them. This obligation is codified in the Sale of Goods Act of 1979 in Section 3 where it is stated, where necessaries are sold and delivered to a miner, he or she must pay a reasonable price for them. A statutory definition of the term necessary is provided in Section 2, Section 3 of the Sales of Goods Act of Ghana, 1962, Act 137, which therein states that necessaries are goods suitable to the condition in life of the person to whom they are delivered and his actual requirements at the time of the delivery. Whilst the onus of proof that a contract is for necessaries falls upon the supplier, contracts in this form have been found in a wide range of situations, including expensive and far-reaching purchases. The definition of necessaries includes obvious purchases such as food and clothing, but also services or goods which are in furtherance of education or apprenticeship. The necessaries of one miner will not necessarily reflect those of another. The particular circumstances, such as age and immediate needs, may lead to differing outcomes. For example, in Peters versus Fleming, it was found that a gold ring and watch chain were necessaries for the child of a member of parliament. However, a contract may not be for necessaries where a miner's needs are adequately satisfied or purchase can be seen as unnecessary. This is demonstrated by Nash versus Inman, where a tailor's claim that a child's purchase of 11 waistcoats for necessaries failed on the ground that he already owned adequate clothing. Although it is clear that contracts for necessaries can legally bind minors, the terms of such contract may defeat it. Where a contract contains particularly burdensome or unfair terms, the courts may decide that a minor does not have the capacity to be bound by them. Where a minor hired a car and crashed it through no fault of his own, instead of going after the person that was at fault, the owner went after the minor. Court held that the owner could not recover on the grounds that a contract term put the car entirely at the minor's risk, as that would be unconscionable. A minor may enter into a contract for employment and be bound by it where it is for his general benefit. Where a minor chose to work under terms which would lower any compensation he may have received for injury, and this was obviously to his disadvantage, he would not be bound by employment. If such terms were held to be generally to his advantage, as he would be insured against more types of accidents, his employment contract would be binding. Equally, where a professional boxer, while still a minor, was deprived of pay for a fight, totaling about 3,000 pounds, for breach of standard boxing rules, such sanctions were enforceable as the necessity of upholding sporting rules was generally beneficial to him. Where this is not the case in DeFrancesco versus Branham, contractual obligations may be void. Here a girl of 14 contracted with a professional dancer to become their apprentice. The contract stated that the girl could not accept dancing engagements for herself and was not required to be paid except for performances she gave. Their agreement was held not to be binding due to these unreasonable terms. 
repudiation or ending a contract, or a minor contract for the purchase or lease of land, or for a service which carries with it ongoing obligations, such as marriage settlements or the purchase of shares, such a contract will be binding upon the minor upon reaching the age of majority should they not choose to repudiate it within a reasonable amount of time. The amount of time which is deemed reasonable is circumstantial, though it is clear from Carnell versus Harrison that acting upon an agreement while not knowing of the right to repudiation is not sufficient reason to invalidate a contract. Financial obligations which fall before repudiation are binding on minors. A minor in an agreement to rent a flat may be sued for non-payment of rent. Additionally, in Steinberg v. Scala Limited, the recovery of payments made in a share agreement were denied. Only future obligations were extinguished by repudiation. Lack of mental capacity. In order for an individual to succeed in claiming mental incapacity, they must prove that any impairment was such that they did not understand what they were doing, and that the other party was aware of this. Lord Brightman stated in Hart v. O'Connor, the validity of a contract entered into by a lunatic who is ostensibly sane is to be judged by the same standards as a contract by a person of sound mind, and is not voidable by the lunatic or his representatives by reason of unfairness, unless such unfairness amounts to equitable fraud which would have enabled the complaining party to avoid the contract even if he had been sane. Such an approach differs from that taken with minors, where the other contracting party need not know that they are dealing with a minor in order to be bound, whilst there is no absolute standard for a party to be deemed capable of contracting, they must at least know the principles of what they are contracting for to legally bind themselves. As with minors, however, an incapacitated person is bound by statute regarding contracts for necessaries. This obligation falls under Section 7 of the Mental Capacity Act of 2005, assuming the rule of Section 3 of the Sale of Goods Act 1979. Those incapacitated may also choose to ratify a contract at a later date if their mental incapacity ends. Individuals who are clearly intoxicated by alcohol or otherwise are generally deemed not to be able to enter legally binding agreements. Lord Ellenborough stated that such persons have no agreeing mind, though similar principles apply as to those who are otherwise incapacitated. A drunken person can choose to ratify a contract once they are sober again, and under the Sales of Goods Act of 1979, they are legally bound with regard to contracts for necessaries. Ultra-virus. Up until the reforms in the Companies Act of 2006, it was necessary for all companies to spell out the objects or the legitimate range of tasks of their business. A company might have an objects clause, for instance, to create software for and maintain an online encyclopedia. If companies acted outside their objects, then this would be an ultra-virus act. And until 1989, this used to make the action wholly void. An ultra-virus act is an act whereby one acts beyond their legal capacity. 
For example, someone who says to Z that they're an agent for X and offers Z an unauthorized discount, when in reality X is not an agent and not authorized to offer a discount. That is an ultra-virus act. In Ashbury Railway Carriage and Iron Company Limited versus Ritchie, the company had the objects clause to make and sell or lend on hire railway carriages. An objects clause is a provision in a company's constitution that spells out what their range of activities are. But then the directors gave out a loan to build railways in Belgium. The House of Lords held simply, the act was ultra-virus and consequently void. This policy was thought to protect shareholders and creditors whose investments or credit would not be used for an unanticipated purpose by disobedient directors. However, it soon became clear that the ultra-virus rule restricted the flexibility of businesses to expand to meet market opportunities. In other words, here comes this great opportunity to sell a railway system to Belgium, but the company's constitution doesn't allow for extending a loan to a customer. But the customer's creditworthiness is obvious and it's a great opportunity to make a lot of money. A void contract by a conservative shareholder might unexpectedly and arbitrarily hinder business. What if the shareholder who had the right to bring an ultra-virus action to stop the contract in reality had significantly more shares in a competing company? The ultra-virus claim could be used to defeat the contract by a competitor. In an attempt to circumvent the rule, companies began to draft ever longer objects clauses, often adding an extra provision stating all objects must be construed as fully separate or the company's objects include anything directors feel is reasonably incidental to the business. The first set of reforms in the Companies Act of 1989 was to stipulate that contracts remained valid and third parties were unaffected if an agreement is ultra-virus. It is only if a party contracting with a company has acted in callous bad faith with the knowledge that a company exceeded its capacity that a contract may still cease to be valid. The second set of reforms came in the 2006 Act. Now companies are deemed to have unlimited objects unless they opt for restrictions. This means companies no longer need to draft massive objects clauses. The 2006 reforms have also clarified the legal position that if a company does have limited objects, which is likely to become increasingly rare, an ultra-virus act will cause the directors to have breached a duty to follow the Constitution under Section 171. So now, a shareholder who disagreed with an action outside the company's objects must sue directors for any loss. What this tells us is that there's a trend in the courts to give corporations a wider latitude in making contracts. The courts are said to abhor forfeiture and want a party to recognize the benefit of their bargain. Legality of Contract Legality can be defined as an act, agreement, or contract that is consistent with the law or state of being lawful or unlawful in a given jurisdiction. Legal principle that an accused may not be prosecuted for an act that is not declared a crime in that jurisdiction is actually about the principle of legality, which is part of the overall concept of legality. Collectively, 
how we interpret the reality of our actual understanding of a concept manifests itself through the different individual narratives that we tell about the origins and meanings of a particular concept. The difference in narratives about the same set of facts is what divide us. An individual has the ability to frame or to understand something very differently than the next person. Evidence does not always lead to a clear attribution of the specific cause or meaning of an issue. Meanings are derived through narratives. Reality and the facts that surround it are personally subject and laden with assumptions based on clearly stated facts. This shift in framing happens because our perceptions depend on new information and experiences. This very idea is the basis of Ewick and Sibley definition of legality. Our everyday experience shapes our understanding of the law. Ewick and Sibley define legality more broadly as those meanings, sources of authority, and cultural practices that are in some sense legal, although not necessarily approved or acknowledged by official law. The concept of legality, the opportunity to consider how, where, and with what effect laws produced in and through commonplace social interactions, how do our roles and statuses, our relationships, our obligations, prerogatives, and responsibilities, our identities and our behaviors bear the imprint of law. In a paper on normative phenomena of morality, ethics, and legality, legality is defined taking the state's role into account as the system of laws and regulations of right and wrong behavior that are enforceable by the state, federal, state, or local government body in the U.S., through the exercise of its policing powers and judicial process with the threat and use of penalties, including its monopoly on the right to use physical violence. The principle of legality is the legal idea that requires all law to be clear, ascertainable, and non-retrospective. It requires decision makers to resolve disputes by applying legal rules that have been clarified beforehand and not to alter the legal situation retrospectively by discretionary departures from established law. The principle has particular relevance in criminal and administrative law. In criminal law, it can be seen in the general prohibition of the imposition of criminal sanctions for acts or omissions that were not criminal at the time of their commission or omission. The principle is also thought to be violated when the sanctions for a particular crime are increased with retrospective effect. In administrative law, it can be seen in the desire for state officials to be bound by and apply the law rather than acting upon whim. As such, advocates of the principle are normally against discretionary powers. A law that violates the principle by retroactively making actions illegal that were committed before the enactment of the law is called an ex post facto law. Rule of law provides availability of rules laws and legal mechanism to implement them. Principle of legality checks for availability and quality of the laws. Legality checks if certain behavior is according to law or not. Concept of legitimacy of law looks for fairness or acceptability of fairness of process of implementation of law. 
the quality of being legal and observance to the law may pertain to lawfulness, that is, being sufficient to the law, or it may get discussed in principles of legality or may be discussed as legal legitimacy. In contract law, legality of purpose is required of every enforceable contract. One cannot validate or enforce a contract to do activity with an unlawful purpose.